Celebrating Wharton's Reunion Weekend, where past alumni have gathered to reconnect and learn. This is a special presentation of Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Here again is Laura Zero. Welcome back to this special Reunion Radio edition of Women at Work. I'm your host, Laura Zaro, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics, and my guest this half hour is Melissa Eisenstadt, President of the Board of Trustees of the New York Youth Symphony. Our phones are open. If you'd like to join the conversation, certainly give us a call. That's 1-844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. But before we begin our conversation, I want to give you a proper introduction of Melissa and where she comes from. She's been a trustee of New York Youth Symphony since 2010 and board president since 2012. And while she's an accomplished musician, her professional life actually started on Wall Street. She worked at CIBC World Markets, where she was managing director in equity research, leading the firm's software industry research team. She was ranked among the top three stock pickers from 1997 to 99 in Wall Street Journal's All-Star Analyst Survey. And prior to all that, she was at Pillar Corporation, which followed her time at Apple Computer, where she worked first in international marketing and then in U.S. business development. This is all not surprising given her history here at Penn. She earned her MBA, MA at Wharton's Lauder Institute and her BA from the College of Art and Sciences. But interestingly, she's also a lifelong cellist and I think a newborn pianist. Um, and music has served as a creative outlet during her career in tech and finance and clearly inspires and informs her current work in music education, which we're going to learn more about. So, Melissa, welcome to Women at Work. Thank you for having me. So, we get to we often get to talk to our alumni about Wall Street, but we don't often get to talk to our alumni about things like the New York Youth Symphony. So tell me, what is it, and how did you get involved? So the New York Youth Symphony is an organization in New, in New York City uh, that educates musically kids 12 to 22, young musicians, in orchestra, which it began with, but also jazz, chamber music, composition, and conducting. It's been around since 1963. Um, and the top ensembles play at Carnegie Hall, Wild Recital Hall, Jazz at Lincoln Center, and other major venues around around the city. They also do outreach to um, underprivileged communities and work very closely with them. So it's a uh, it's an organization whose mission is to inspire young people to use music to. Uh, learn life lessons. But it also sounds like it's operating almost like a conservatory in in the sophistication of the kind of musical endeavors. The the musical endeavors are sophisticated, but we're not looking for the next Yo-Yo Ma or Joshua Bell or Yasha Heifetz. We're really <laughs> looking to inspire young people who have talent and passion for music to become lifelong musical citizens, but really use the the lessons that you learn in music, which is mastering a skill on an instrument and then mm-hmm. playing with other people and then performing, all of which is very good whether you're on Wall Street in an operating room in arguing a, a, a law case um, or on the stage performing Carnegie Hall. I couldn't agree more. I have a background in the arts as well. My art school education has shaped everything I do every day. Right. Um, so, And so for this organization, mm-hmm. um, it's interesting to see that the goal isn't that they go on for musical careers. Do some, though? Absolutely. About, I don't know if it's 10%, maybe 15% do go on to musical careers. And uh, they will go to conservatory. They'll go to the, um, the Curtis Institute. They'll go to Juilliard. They'll go to Oberlin, to a Manhattan lot of school more, of music, Manhattan School of Music, all yeah. of these great places. Um, but many of them will go on to great universities. 
Uh, many of them get into Ivy League schools and great schools around the country. And some of them will minor in music, which I almost wish I had done at Penn, but, but no one told me to do that. <laughs> <laughs> but they'll go on to minor music. Which you they'll... can do if you go to Penn, by You the way. can. And I wish someone I, – I knew Did I was not Did you not gonna... realize that the opportunity was there? I just didn't put it together. I mean, my father wanted me to become a cellist. My father wanted me to go to conservatory. And, and so you had I that support at home. Oh, I definitely had the support at home. And I'd gone to the Aspen Music Festival. And at the end of that, at the end of my third summer there, I realized I was not going to be a professional musician. It just – I didn't have – I didn't have the discipline to to practice six hours a day. It, that alone. is something that I don't think a lot of people understand. Right, is it's, the intense um, discipline and also the physical discipline right. that's necessary right. in in sophisticated musical development. It's the mental and the physical because you're you're you you're a you're a finger athlete, if you will. Right, you it, really are. I mean, it's an athletic working endeavor. those muscles is a big part Absolutely. of it, and connecting your brain to them is the other half. Exactly, and I could practice two hours a day, three hours a day, maybe on a good day. I couldn't practice six, and it's certainly quality as well as well as quantity. But when you're a teenager, that uh, the quantity of practicing is really important. I didn't have that, but I always knew that music would be a part of my life. So, and then what connected me to New York Youth Symphony is that my senior year of high school. I was co-principal cellist of the orchestra, and that was really exciting. It and must have been. That's quite an honor. Yeah. I, well, it was, it was competitive. It was an audition. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I played in the youth symphony, and then I didn't really stay connected to it for a long time. And uh, through a connection, I got back involved and became a trustee. And uh, within a couple of years, they asked me to be board president. So it's been, it's been fun to come full circle. I can. Uh, it must be, and yeah. and thrilling, and a source of pride. I want to so. dive into something that mm-hmm. you mentioned a moment ago, and talking about you know that difference between it's um, impressive enough to think of a high school student being willing to practice for two to three hours a day, <laughs> and that leap to that intensive focus of six to eight hours of practice a day every single day, and that speaks. One of the ways I make sense of that is that it's not just discipline, but it's also drive. How essential is this to you? And that those students, and I've seen them in art, in music, in theater, dance, um, it's like they can't live without doing it. The drive is almost all-consuming. Right. Um, And, well, if you're talking about becoming the next Yo-Yo Ma, you could see where not having that drive might be a problem. But on the other hand, there's a gift in it because there were other parts of you that you wanted to develop. You did not follow your father's advice and (laughs) focus on the cello. You came to Wharton. (laughs) Well, as as a graduate (laughs) student. And then to Wharton. So talk to me about what motivated you to go into business and the parts of that that you're still passionate about. Well, when I got out of when I got out of college, I I knew I want I wanted to go to work. I didn't want to go to graduate school so quickly. And the tech industry was was thriving. It was the early eighties or eighty four. Apple Computer was sort of this newly launched, exciting company. And I went there, and I spoke several languages. So I went into international marketing. That was my first job out of college. And um, within a couple of years, I I traveled all over the world. It was really interesting, but I realized there were so many aspects of the business that I didn't understand because I didn't have a business background in accounting and finance. I thought I'd love to go back to school and learn more about that, and that's how I got drawn back to um, going from a, a, a liberal arts undergrad to a business degree at, at Wharton. And I also combined that with the master's in international studies through the Lauder Institute. Okay, I have to ask, how did you learn to speak all these languages? So Spanish, we spoke a bit growing up um, because we had someone who lived with us who spoke Spanish. 
Um, when I got to Penn, I wanted to learn another language, and I chose French and in, in a very intense way, and I learned that. And then I thought, well, I'd like to learn a different language. And I looked at several languages, and Russian just kind of struck me. There was also a great undergraduate history course for anyone listening who was here as an undergrad in the 80s. Um, Rezimovsky had this great Russian history course. It was a huge, huge course, but um, it was it, just the history fascinated me. So I ended up learning Russian. It's um, incredible. You yeah. know, um, I've heard rumors that, or not rumors, but theories that musicians have an, um, a capacity for language. And I also know that in um, classical music programs, especially for vocalists, learning other languages and um, musicologists and um, conductors, that learning other languages can be actually necessary. Yes. Well, if you're singing, I, you, <laughs> I've talked to singers about the fact that they need to, they need to pronounce, they need to, to learn to at least elocute correctly when they speak. Or when they sing, and conductors who conduct all over the world. Um, usually, English is sort of the the lingua franca for con- for conducting. But certainly, some composers will write down you know, notes and notes about mm-hmm. what they want, and it's, it certainly helps to speak another language and, and understand music history. Music history, and just to connect with people too. I think okay. that's really important. So now let's connect the dots between um, how you got involved as a trustee before even becoming president of the Board right. of Trustees. Um, talk to me about your kind of volunteer work and how you selected it and mm-hmm. moved through that process. Well, when I when I left Wall Street, I, I never had any time to do any kind of volunteer work when I was on Wall Street. And I was asked to join a, a couple of different boards or consider them. And I just I just never had time. I never had time to, to breathe, let alone how do could you? else. Right. Well, the stock market ruled my life. Um, <laughs> I would say Bill Gates. When Bill Gates sneezed, everything stopped. Anyway, um, <laughs> So when I left Wall Street, I knew I wanted to do something. I actually initially joined um, the board of um, a cancer research organization that was started by a, a colleague of mine from Wall Street who had a background in biology and, and, um, and, and the sciences. And that was a great introduction to a really, really well-managed um, uh, not-for-profit. And I, I enjoyed that work, but I didn't connect with it as much because I, I'm not a scientist. I don't do cancer research. I mean, I love the mission. Right. But it wasn't necessarily something that that spoke to me as much as music and I went back to my music actually and started studying and all of a sudden I was practicing five hours a day this was out of business school oh, that's I, I'm sorry out of out of uh, Wall Street so now as an adult as an adult you're finding that right. kind of drive that was a little more elusive exactly and why it's... as if two to three hours a day was not given <laughs> <laughs> but somehow I started studying again as I went on this, this not-for-profit board that was my introduction to not-for-profit work I started I went back to studying music um after a year, my teacher said, you know, what do you want to do with this? You could start to go professional. Certainly not center stage Carnegie Hall, but you could start to get gigs. You could start to make money at this. And I thought, well, do I really want to do that or do I want this to sort of remain my passion? I decided I wanted it to remain my passion, but I began to look at other organizations in which I could volunteer. And the New York Youth Symphony came along through my, my late aunt who knew someone on the board. And one thing led to another. And I started. I went to a concert and someone turned to me and said, well, was it this good when you were in it? I'm like, it was 30 years ago. I have, <laughs> I'm sure it's better now. But um, it was, it was, a, it really awoken, it, it, it woke something in me. And uh, when I started talking about going on the board, um, I did a lot of due diligence, which is, I will say, came from my business background. Talk Looking, to me about that a little bit. I mean, you know, people get really passionate in not-for-profits about what the mission is, and we're we're 
we're curing cancer, we're saving the world, we're educating kids. That's all fabulous. But at the end of the day, it is a business. It may be a not-for-profit business, but it's a business. And I looked carefully at the financial statements. I attended a board meeting before I even went on the board, before I was even nominated. Did you need to ask to do that, or was there an open door to it? No, I had to ask. And I I said to them, we were talking about my becoming a a trustee. Um, they They had not proposed me to the board. But I said to them, I said, I'd really like to see what the board dynamics are in this organization. And I had gotten that from my business background and certainly in equity research. You're researching companies. You're interviewing people. You're constantly looking for what makes this business work and that stock work versus another one that doesn't work. So I applied that know-how to the due diligence I did for New York Youth Symphony because I certainly loved the mission. That I identified with immediately. Right. No question there. But – um, and I was allowed. I was allowed to do this. I don't think anyone had ever asked to do that. But I, I, I encourage people to, you know, ask any question you want. Ask for any information you want. Absolutely. I mean, it's all. It'll make you a, a more confident trustee. Absolutely. So, and it also, I have to imagine, it's useful. It's a message that you're sending to the candidates that um, there is openness. Absolutely. And, and the and nothing to hide. Right. There's nothing to hide, and it 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 leads to more questions. And I'm always interested in hearing what kinds of questions people have for me. So. Um, it was a, it was a really interesting process, and so when, when I went on the board, I I uh, certainly knew more about the organization than just sort of meeting a few people and saying, okay, let's do. Right, can can you, you afford it? You Fine, had really been it. diving into right. how does it operate. By the way, this is our special reunion radio edition of Women at Work on Business Radio Sirius XM One Eleven, and I'm your host, Laura Zarrow. I'm talking with Melissa Eisenstadt, president of the board of trustees of the New York Youth Symphony. So I want to back up for a second. Um, you, in talking about that split, you know, like you've now left Wall Street, you're taking lessons again, you're practicing, you're motivated, and you're passionate. Um, and because and it strikes a personal chord for me about why I don't make art, uh-huh. is you, the language that you used was you talked about, you know, did you do it professionally or do you keep it as your passion? You didn't say hobby, you said passion. Mm-hmm. So talk to me about how you, where you feel the tension is. Is that about, allowing yourself to love it and some of that changes when it becomes work? Or is it about something different? Mm, That's a good question. Uh, I guess a hobby to me would be something I'm maybe less serious or maybe less knowledgeable about or I'm I'm less engaged in. Okay. Less invested in. Uh, The the passion, I guess, also comes from from me. And I I don't say this has to be for everyone. For me... It comes probably from the deep knowledge and mm-hmm. the fact that it it's not just something that casually interests me. And you're not doing it just to entertain yourself. No. And certainly not enter- entertain my cats or my husband, trust <laughs> me, <laughs> or my neighbors. But um, Although they probably are. <laughs> I, they, I've never gotten a complaint. Okay. But um, I, do, I do practice almost every day. I also – I studied – piano when I was very young for about 10 years. And I, about three years ago, two and a half years ago, I went back to piano and started jazz piano. So that, um, so I, I, between cello and piano, I practice something almost every single day. Okay. So I want to talk about the difference in these two things and not the instruments, but you were classically trained. Right. And continuing to develop as a classical cellist. Absolutely. What was different for you in approaching jazz piano? How did it change the way that you had to think about music? Oh my God, everything. Jazz is a different language. Um, in in classical music, everything is on the written page, basically. I mean, yes, we can take a we can take more time here. We can be a little louder there. We can, there are things there's room can do. for some interpretation. Right. But 
I I personally, if you play um, a recording of two different cellists or three different cellists and say, okay, who's playing that recording of that box suite? I'm not necessarily going to be able to tell you who it is. I might, but not necessarily. If you take a tune like Autumn Leaves, which everyone loves, and you have Bill Evans, Keith Jarrett, and Oscar Peterson, oh, Oscar Peterson, yeah, any of them play, you would know instantly who it is, or you would know that they're not the same cellist. Right, that it's, it's... It's a different language. The sound of their playing is their voice. They're, exactly, and... It, the, the whole process of improvisation, people say to me, well, how do you learn to improvise, which I'm still trying to figure out. <laughs> but it's it's understanding the chord structure. It's taking the melody and kind of, kind of stretching that and going off piece a little bit. It's the... The broad outline of uh, of a chart is on the printed page, but what you do with that can go in any direction, and it's never performed the same way twice. So, so one of my um, uh, similes that I use for uh-huh. it is that it's not unlike cooking with and without a recipe. Uh-huh. That you learn to cook with the recipe, mm-hmm. you follow, especially when you're baking. Uh-huh, the amounts right. matter, the stages matter, mm-hmm. um, and that as you emerge as a cook. Mm-hmm. And you become more creative. You understand how your ingredients work together. Absolutely. You understand how things like fat and heat and salt and acid affect it. Absolutely. And then you can be creative with how you bring it to life. And in the process, though, Mm -hmm. um, you can really botch a dish. Uh And in learning to improvise, you can make a lot of noise. Absolutely. (laughs) How did you... Aside from understanding the structure of the musical components, uh-huh. how did you deal with the emotional journey of learning to improvise, particularly when, at least from the cheap seats, it looks like you had had a career that was based on studying things, practicing things, being precise and getting it right. Right. In in jazz, it's it's kind of it's most of it is right. There's sort of very little <laughs> that's wrong, if you will. So even a a note that sounds off can be used to create something else. And mm-hmm. but emotionally, I mean, learning how to to let that go is 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 really important. My teacher always says, he says, keep on playing over and over. I have an application on my on my phone that I use um, to loop a, a tune, you know, what five is it times. Called? It's called um, um, I have to think about this. Um, iReal Pro. It's okay. a, it's a terrific app, and you can take a chart that's you know twenty four bars or whatever it is. And you can make it repeat eight times, ten to twenty times. So you however. can just keep improvising over it. Exactly. It just it repeats. It's the the your your backup band, which is a trio, which is drums and, and bass, which is and, and piano. Um, you can adjust the mix, and then you can play over it. And one of the things my teachers emphasized to me is, don't stop halfway through the second time. He said. He said <laughs> even if you think you totally screwed up, fine. Lay out for a couple of measures. Jump back but in. But no matter what, you got to keep, keep going. going. Which in in classical music, I'm used to. If I miss a note, I've learned to keep going. And one of the things that I'm I'm hopefully starting to overcome is to <laughs> the the the, uh, the willingness to just keep on going forward, no matter what happens. Even if I lay out for a measure or two, let it keep going. I mean, especially if you have a backup band like a great trio in right. uh, on my <laughs> iReal Pro app, it'll it'll keep going, and then you can jump back in. And that's been something I've I finally learned to do. And I used to. After two or three times, I'd two or three cycles of a, of a tune, I'd kind of stop. And now I've, I'll cycle five times, eight times, probably to the chagrin of everyone around me. But <laughs> I, I do, and it's, it's a lot of fun. And I try different things. So I'm not being afraid to try, just it takes practice. It's almost, um, I mean, I do a lot of skiing, and it's almost like learning to, uh, on a very steep slope, 
to just let your skis go, to kind of let yourself go, let yourself try something. And, of course, as my teacher points out, you're not going to hurt yourself physically if you try something that, quote, unquote, doesn't work. Right. You won't break your legs. You won't break your legs or your fingers. Even though it can still be frightening. So part of what you're learning is also how to turn yourself over to it. Put the fear aside and try through this iterative process. That's right. How is this and is it shaping the way that you lead? I I think that. Well, in general, I think there are a lot of things that have, I would say, have characterized the way I've become a leader for New York Youth Symphony, and that is um, maybe this is more experience than than jazz piano itself, but Fair is, enough. is just um, realizing that it's most of it doesn't matter. There's very there's very little that is so critical that I, I used to get my knickers in a knot <laughs> if a stock was off was off for some reason or if a if a CFO had said something that was, I thought was ridiculous, I would go crazy. And I thought, and I think to myself now, does it really matter if we take another day to discuss this? I mean, unless something is, is a real emergency, right. you learn to lay back. My, my husband would probably say she doesn't lay back so much. But anyway, <laughs> um, you, but you, I think I learned to be more flexible and not to get so uh, so agitated every time something something doesn't quite go the way I thought it would. So tell me, what, what really does matter right now? What are you trying to focus on in your work with the New York Youth Symphony? So I would say uh, engagement with the community is a big part of what we're doing now. Um, we've got a great program that serves 250, uh, 250 students. We reach out to um, lots of different neighborhoods. We bring many people to Carnegie Hall and Jazz at Lincoln Center and Wild Recital Hall and all these great venues. But really getting out into the community, into um, parts of the community that are underserved, that don't have as much music or have some music but really need could so, benefit from that. So how much of that um, kind of goal and strategy is about bringing musical exposure to communities that don't have it? How much of it is recruitment and how much of it is fundraising? Uh, well, it's always fundraising. It's, <laughs> right. Fundraising never <laughs> stops. Anyone out there, nyis.org? No, no, no. Um, but um, seriously, uh, I think that it's it's recruiting the right people and it's also finding the right partners. And I, I, I have to give a shout out to my um, to my classmate Sarah Lee because um, one of my best friends from uh, from uh, business school, and and Lauder, um, is a woman Sarah Lee who worked on Wall Street for a long time. Um, when she retired from Wall Street, she went to she went into the not for profit world and is now the CEO, basically the, the director of operations, which is like the COO of a charter school in the South Bronx, and. Her school is the one that we partnered with this year. Oh, what a fantastic yeah. story! It's a great. It's a, just a. I wish, I wish she were coming on next because <laughs> she, her her story is really interesting. And so it's really finding the right partners. That's what's so important. And we were. This is the school that we're partnering with. Um, Kip School in the Bronx, the middle school. Um, they are passionate about music education. So it was the it was the right group of of kids who were already excited to learn something but to be exposed to other kinds of students. So does this give the students at the New York Youth Symphony performance opportunities? Yes. And it's also exposing the students there to, to music that they might not otherwise ever hear. Yes, it does. And it, it, it exposes them to performance opportunities, but also collaborative opportunities with other kinds of students. And it gives them a chance to kind of be leaders because sometimes they'll have side-by-side readings with students where a 16-year-old is suddenly like the grown-up. So tell sitting. me what a reading is like when you're talking so, about musical. So it they'll they'll sit they'll, they'll do a side by side reading where all, where they'll bring a group of students from the New York Youth Symphony Orchestra say, and they'll pair them and put them on the same stand with students who play the same instrument in the school 
So you'll have a, a, a stand of, of two violinists. One will be from the New York Youth Symphony, who's playing at a fairly a reasonably high level, and someone from KIPP who may not be as advanced. They may be younger, too. That'd and they're sharing the, the sheet music. They're sharing the sheet music. And it's, it's, like, it's like any kind of sport or any, any other endeavor. When you play with someone who's better than you, you play up to that level, whether it's tennis or squash. It is or, amazing how yeah. it really does elevate your game or it, your performance. Absolutely. It kind of makes you think quicker. And I know with my music playing, when I play with my, when I play string quartets, which I do all the time, with people who are really good, oh, my God, I, I'm so focused. But um, that's, what, that, that's what the reading does is it gives our students who are, who are young musicians an opportunity to kind of be, be the grown-up, be the, the demonstrator, be the teacher. And that's a really – that's a nice leadership skill. Again, it's, it's, it's using music as a way to learn life skills. This and to mentor. Which to mentor, is mentor, And to send the message that it's valuable and to exactly. give examples for how to do it. I have to say – I have to tell one great anecdote we had. Um, we had some wonderful anecdotes about this, this collaboration this year. But there was one young woman – who, from the KIPP school, who listened to one of our um, string quartets play a, a movement from a Beethoven um, string quartet. She'd never heard Beethoven before, probably never heard of Beethoven before. At the end of it, she said, oh, my gosh, I was that, took, that music took me to a different place, someplace I had never been. I loved that. I mean, she just – I'm not saying she's going to go suddenly become a, a violinist or play no, a lot of Beethoven, but, the, but, but it really I – think, I think the arts in general, and you probably have this in, in your own work, the arts – I think speak touches a part of us that um, is so visceral. Yes, and it's something that we all share, but that sometimes we don't know how to take in. Right. And that we don't, either we don't get exposed to it, or when we are, we don't know how to listen. So it sounds like with the work that you're doing, um, on so many levels, right. you're helping people learn to listen, right. to to discover things to love, and to learn how to develop themselves. Absolutely. Well, to play music, you need to you need to listen to what everyone else is doing, or you're, you've missed it. So. It's sort of a metaphor for life. If people want to get involved, yes. where can they turn for more information on what you're doing? <laughs> okay. So um, the organization is New York. Youth Symphony. The uh, the website is nyys.org. And um, go on the website and see what you think and contact the office. And if you're in New York and you want to come to a concert, we have lots of concerts throughout the, uh, throughout the year, especially in the spring. And um, over Memorial Day weekend on Sunday, there will be the final concert in Carnegie Hall with pictures and exhibition. And that's Great exciting piece. and a good excuse to get dressed up and go support a bunch <laughs> of fantastic young musicians. Exactly. Melissa, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. It's really been a treat to get to talk to you. If you have a question about anything that you heard on today's show, you can email us um, at businessradio at SiriusXM.com and be sure to follow our show on Twitter at BizRadio111 or at Laura Zarrow. I'd like to thank my beloved producer, Patty Hall, our fantastic sound engineer, Danielle Bruno. I'm Laura Zarrow, and thank you for listening to this special reunion radio edition of Women at Work right here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 111. Thanks, everyone. Sirius XM.